My name's David Blowers. I'm one of the ministry staff here. And as we turn to God's word again, let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins and brings us into new life with you. We ask this morning as we consider the example of Paul, a man who sought to live in the footsteps of our Master, teach us how we are to live. Especially, Father, would you fill our hearts with the joy of knowing that you have done all that we need. In the face of whatever comes in our lives, whatever's happening right now, please, Father, teach us to rejoice in the Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're in the middle of Philippians, and if you remember the last couple of weeks, really chapters 2 and 3 are born out of that one verse in chapter 1 and verse 27. Come back with me to Philippians 1, 27. I hope you've got your Bible there. Just one thing, Paul said, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christians, we belong not to this world, not to this country, not to any earthly nation, but we are citizens of heaven. Therefore, Paul says, live worthy of that nation. Live your citizenship. And in particular, in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I I don't know if you have this same expectation, but my expectation is that our lives as Christians in Australia will only get harder. The the generations that have come before us have had the privilege, the, 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 the ease of living in a country that was at least culturally Christian. I, I can speak, I've spoken with people who remember the days when Ingleburn had 150, 200 people in the Sunday school. It was just because you'd send your kids, to, this was part of the normal culture. It's changing. If you are somebody who's in their 20s, their 30s, it won't be long before the ability to speak publicly of Jesus may well be something that's a bit more difficult. The ability to find promotion at work might become more challenging. You might even have friends or even family who say, no, you may not speak that way. Liberty, life, I I don't think we're... uh, Look, I guess it's possible at some sort of dystopian future, but I don't think it's likely that in this country we're going to get to the point where you fear for your life because you're a Christian, as happens to our brothers and sisters. But it's real, true suffering, opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. People are already losing jobs because they stand up for Jesus and his teaching. In the face of that opposition, how are we supposed to live lives worthy of the gospel? Well, if you remember last week, we do it united. We stand together. We contend, we fight for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that born out of humility that humility that comes from seeing others as more important than yourself, looking to meet their needs over and above your own, having that mind of Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became a slave all the way to death, even death on a cross. How is it that we're going to live lives that are worthy of the gospel? Stand firm, unafraid, humbly united, And we finished last week with two examples of that, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two men who lived out this mindset of Christ. Now today, chapter 3, really is a third example. That's why I kind of wanted to give you the really really quick version of the last two weeks because Paul, in chapter 3, wants to kind of point to himself and say, well, you want to learn what it looks like 
to live this life worthy of the gospel? Let me show you. What can we learn from Paul about living lives worthy of our Lord and Saviour? Now, if you've got a bulletin, you'll find an outline of where we're going on there. Uh, taking notes, those sorts of things, always very helpful for you. And I want to talk, first of all, about rejoicing. Have a look, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Here's the first thing that we learn from Paul. He says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. And if you've noticed the whole way through the letter so far, joy keeps popping up. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul said, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love. Chapter 3, verse 1, my, the command, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, we'll see next week. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your... Right, joy is the whole way through the letter. If you want to learn the example of Paul, then our Christian lives somehow, and we'll see in a moment where it comes from, somehow must be filled with joy. Again, not trite happiness. Joy isn't a face you put on. It's not fake emotionality. I think the closest synonym I find is gladness. It's different to happiness. You can be in quite dire circumstances and still glad about certain things. You can be facing very severe opposition. In fact, think about Paul for a moment. He wrote this letter from jail. The guy was imprisoned for preaching Jesus. And he's writing about the joy that he has. He's writing to people who are being persecuted because they preach Jesus. And he says to them, rejoice. Now notice what he says though, rejoice in the Lord. You see, this is the gladness idea. That no matter what you're facing right now, you know who God is and you know what God has done for you every difficulty we face in this life and they can be harsh they can be severe i can look around this room and i know the hardships you go through i know the difficulties you face and i do not want to downplay them but in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits they will pass rejoice in the lord epaphroditus nearly died because of his illness rejoice in the Lord. It's a safeguard for you, he says. To find our joy in God will see us through. To know what he has done so profoundly, so richly, so deeply. The salvation of our souls into eternity, the payment for our sin, the pouring out of his spirit, the giving of new life, the assurance of heaven will keep you firm in him joy deep joy real joy lasting joy produces a, a kind of re resilience 
that our world wishes it could have. I don't know if you've come across it. There seems to be a lot of talk of resilience these days. It's in the, it's in the workforce, right? How are we going to keep people from burning out? And Christians talk about how we're going to have resilience for the long haul. Resilience is a funny thing because I think if you pursue it, you're never going to get it. If you concentrate on it, if you focus on trying to become resilient, all you end up seeing is the difficulties, the hardships, and you don't have much resilience at all. Whereas if you are a person who finds deep joy in God, then whatever comes, that is unmovable. That is a steady rock that produces resilience. It's how Paul, a man in prison, can write to a group of people who are being persecuted, I have joy and you have joy and we're safe in God. Joy that's born out of real righteousness. I say, well, I, I want to have that joy. Sounds wonderful. Can I have it, please? How do I find it? Where do I get it? It comes from knowing that we have real righteousness. The next bit of our passage, Paul is comparing fake righteousness, moral righteousness, the sort of righteousness you might seek to earn on your own, comparing it to the real righteousness that God gives. You see, fake righteousness, and by that I mean the, the, the kind of moral righteousness, Any, anything that relies on me, anything that says, look at me and look how good I am, that kind of righteousness only produces fear. If you are somebody who believes that you are good enough, if your life is somehow based on meeting whatever criteria, you will live a life of fear, always unsure, have I done enough? Have I thought well enough? Have I acted in the right way? Am I currently moral or have I failed? It's the, it's the morality of our age, really. Our, our world is all about perception and appearance. It's the optics of it. Whatever the current moral fad is, whatever the current virtue of the day, you have to be seen to be going along with it. It doesn't really matter whether you go along with it or not. You just have to be seen to go along with it. Right? You've got to film the video and post it on social media of doing the right thing. And that's it, right? You, you've ticked the box. But of course, no one can keep up, can they? Because today's morality becomes tomorrow's worst enemy. You just think about the amount of things that are now seen as honourable and praiseworthy in our culture that even just 10 years, not, not really not long, just 10 years ago were still considered abhorrent. You think about it, if 10 years ago you were somebody who, I, I won't even pick examples because they just become so blown out of proportion, did something, all of a sudden now you can be cancelled for it, right? You can lose your livelihood, you can stop being kicked out of your job, you can have your family, can no one can keep up. That sort of righteousness only brings fear. Our, our modern so-called progressive world really is incredibly regressive. They, they want to go back to the morality of Rome, right? Debauchery, where anything goes. Exploit everyone and enjoy it as long as you are seen to be good. Paul's opponents were this sort of progressive people. They were, they were moralists. They were religious moralists. But Paul says, look, if you want to talk that kind of righteousness, I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. I could stand up and virtue signal with the best of them. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 2. Watch out for the dogs. 
Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we've just finished Galatians. So we've got fresh in our minds this group of people who wanted to bring in moral righteousness, who wanted to convince them that as well as receiving the blessings of God, they also had to keep a bit of the Jewish law. Those people in mind, watch out for them. Verse 3, we are the circumcision. We're the real ones, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although, verse 4, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a Pharisee, right? The, the, the ultra, ultra keepers of the law. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. I mean, you, you want to be someone who's like full-on religious? I was prepared to kill my enemies. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless you you want a virtue have a have a kind of a, a standoff with this self-driven morality i win says paul don't care who you are i win that's not going to bring joy though is it self-righteousness is very appealing to us i mean let's just be honest for a moment here the desire to stand on our own two feet is very deep-seated. I mean, that's the essence of sin. Whatever it is, we, we can find comfort in all sorts of things. We can find endless comfort in our heritage. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm an Anglican, thank you very much. I'm evangelical, I'm Protestant, I'm, pick whatever you want. We find endless comfort in our denomination. I'm, I'm really, I'm actually a Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Reformed Dutch. We can find endless comfort in our national identity or our theological stable. Oh, I'm, I'm part of the, the Jensen Evangelicals, thank you very much. Right? I, I'm, I'm we can even find comfort in places that are good, in our, in our ministry, in our evangelistic success, in our faith. But any of these things, if we are finding our comfort, our source of joy in ourselves... All it will produce is fear that will lead to quarrelling and defensiveness and division and the very opposite of the unity that God calls us to. True righteousness is never look at me. It's always look at him. Have a look at verse 7. Everything that was gain to me, this long list of my morality... I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I've considered everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ the righteousness from God based on faith. <laughs> that long list of my virtues, says Paul, that's nothing. In fact, that's loss. That held me back. To rest on that is worse than neutral. 
I consider it nothing because I have gained Christ. I have the righteousness that is given by God. I am a recipient of God's given righteousness. Why on earth would I go and try and stand on my own when instead I can have God's own perfection gifted to me in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And I tell you what, that brings with it great, great joy. To have received the best gift. We've just had Christmas. I don't know how your Christmas went. There comes an age where you don't really get many presents anymore, do you? A couple more kilos, that's about the gift you get at Christmas, isn't it? I was chatting with someone just recently who said, the only present I got was the one I bought myself. And I bought that one a year ago. (laughs) So we're sitting at Christmas and everyone's opening their presents. And you know, there's always someone in the room who gets the best gift, isn't there? There's always someone. You're like, the uncle comes in and is like, yes, I bought you a little $2 gift and I bought you a $2 and I bought you a little... And I thought of you and I bought you the $500 gift because it made me think of you so much and here you go and boom, out comes this enormous thing, right? And everyone else is sitting there going, mm-hmm, thanks. Thanks for my gift, right? You ever had that? Maybe it's just me. But how wonderful is it to be the one who gets the good gift, <laughs> To be sitting there unwrapping it going, <laughs> look what I have. It's just marvelous. It's just tremendous. And little siblings, do you want to swap? <laughs> Not a chance. What a gift God has given us. Recipients of His grace. Real righteousness that is truly ours now. No need to stand under the burden that you carry. To somehow feel like you have to lift that weight. Jesus has done it and given you his life in return. True righteousness that produces deep, deep joy. But you know, Paul's realistic, right? This is a righteousness that we have received, that has been gifted to us. But we're still pressing on towards the goal. It's this weird juxtaposition. It's it's the strangeness of Christian life. That we have it all, but we don't quite have it all yet. We, We haven't joined the resurrection, even though we are in Christ's resurrection. We haven't died yet, and Jesus hasn't returned. So we know we have this joy because of the real righteousness. And yet Paul wants to remind us that we must press on towards the goal. We don't stop and just sit back and nothing happens. It is ours now while we press on towards the goal. It's not self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness because of who he is. Have a look with me at verse 10. My goal, says Paul, is to know him, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. But again, it's not self-righteousness. It's all Christ's righteousness. Paul's life began in Jesus. He lives in Christ. He wants to be resurrected in Christ's resurrection. He suffers with Christ, but he hasn't arrived yet. 
The resurrection is still to come. The, the, the end point of what we hope for is still to come. And so what Paul does is sets his mind on heaven. It's kind of hard to live that way, to be honest. To, to, to live every day conscious of what lies ahead. I, I don't know if you find that. I, don't know, I, I find it ch challenging. I, life's busy. There's so much to do, so many things to remember. There's so many conflicts to work through and just good things to do. There's fun to be had and it's hard to remember. I'm a child of heaven. That's my destination. That is the source of my joy. That is the source of my strength. I face whatever comes because I long for them and I know that I belong to them. This is Paul's example, pressing on with minds set on heaven because we are already known by Jesus. Our destination is assured. It's not pressing on hoping that we'll get there, striving to get there. It's pressing on because we know we will be there. Because Jesus knows us. What a tremendous truth that is. You ever walk down the street and recognize someone famous? Who's, who's ever recognized someone famous, just out in general in public? None of us, two people. Really? The rest of us just live in, in my house. I'm like, I don't want to see anyone. I want to see famous people. Right? I mean, it's kind of cool. You're walking down the street, you go, oh, that's so-and-so. Should, should we go get an autograph? No, leave them. You know, they're just living their life. It's kind of cool. You get a little buzz out of it. Right? Do you know what's even cooler? When you're walking down the street and someone famous recognizes you, Anyone ever had that happen? <laughs> I reckon if we were down, you know, in the eastern suburbs, whatever, somewhere, and we saw Anthony Albanese, we'd recognise him. Right? Most of us would go, hey, look, it's Albo, right? Like, he's our Prime Minister. That's great. Imagine him turning around. Dave, how are you? Long time no see. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure why he'd know me, but, you know, what an amazing thing. Jesus Christ. God become flesh, says, hello, I know you, I love you, you're one of mine. <laughs> How are you? Come on in. Actually, don't tell me, I already know. <laughs> we press on towards heaven on the basis that God has made us his own. We don't press on because we need him to, but because he already has. And how does he do it, Paul says, verse 13, he does it by forgetting what's behind and looking to what's ahead. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Some of us find it very hard to forget what is behind. Sometimes it's the, thing, the good things, right? Our, our self-righteousness, our self-morality, our attachment to our heritage, to our roots, to our denomination, to our theology, to our faith, to our ministry. Very hard to leave that behind. If you are used to self-justification, it's really hard to stop self-justifying and allow God to justify. Some of us find it very hard to leave behind our sin. The sin that we have committed the consequences that have come from it. I find it very hard to leave the guilt behind. It's 
It's a weight that we struggle to let go of. Some of us find it very hard to leave behind the sin that has been committed against us when we've been wronged truly and deeply and hurtfully. The model that we have is how God has dealt with our sin. If you're somebody who's carrying the weight of your sin, know that Jesus has paid for it. It is truly, truly gone. As far as the east is from west. (laughs) Good luck pinpointing that one. That's how far God has placed your sin. But tell you what, if you're someone who's carrying the wrong that others have done towards you, can I also point to God as the example? We wronged him so much more than anybody will ever wrong us. And he forgave. It's a new year, right? The new you. It's a time to leave behind the fights and the hurt and the bitterness that's grown out of it. To truly forgive and forget the broken promises, the hurtful words, the damaging actions. God has put our slate washed clean. He's just chucked it out. It's gone. How can we live carrying someone else's slate before us? No, you wronged me. I'm always going to remember. I'm going to hold it right here. And anytime you ever talk to me, I'm going to remember. I'm going to see you through the wrong you did me. No, I forget what lies behind, says Paul. And instead, I reach forward to what is ahead the prized promise of God's heavenly call. It's like a, it made me think of a siren song that just wafts down from heaven, the alluring, I mean, this is a good case, right? The siren, in the mermaid tales, they always want to kill the sailors. I mean, that's, that's not quite what's happening here, right? But, but God's promise reaching down to us, dragging us forward, the glory that awaits, the rest that is still to come. And how are we going to do it? Well, Paul says, follow the model. Verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. I've often told you, and now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Are you going to do it? Well, the practical day-to-day outworking is to follow the example of those who follow Christ. Pay careful attention to them. How far should I go, as an example, in humble service? If you remember last week's question. How far should I give of myself for the sake of others? Well, follow the model. How far did Paul go? Right now he's in jail. (laughs) How far did Christ go? All the way to the cross. But you don't even have to point that far away, do you? I mean, you just look around the room. We have some wonderful, godly saints among us who have lived out their days to stand now. Look, the problem is 
The problem is, not one of them would ever say, look at me, right? That's the problem. They're all so humble, <laughs> born out of a lifetime of following Jesus, that they'd never stand up and say, imitate me as I imitate. Like, like no one's going to do that. So we just have to go and find them and copy them. And don't worry about talking to them and asking about it. Just do it, right? You see someone who is clearly putting Jesus first, be thankful to God for them, and then do your best to copy them, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And be careful, he says, of people who pursue earthly things. There are many. There are many Christian teachers who will teach you that. Right? If you hear any preacher whose message is about how much you can gain in this world, then you know that they're kind of barking up the wrong tree. Their end, Paul says, is destruction. And sadly, for many of them, their end isn't just destruction for themselves, but it's also destruction for anyone who has the bad fortune of following them. No, instead, unity will bring us together. Unity will cause us to follow those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we talked about this question of unity. Because if there are some who uh, are not followers of Christ, right? if there are some whose end is destruction, if there are some who we really ought not to have anything to do with, how do we know? Where do we draw the line? Where is their unity and where is their disunity? Where will we rightly say to people like these, for example, no, we ought to have nothing to do with you? How do you know when it's right to be in fellowship with somebody and when it's right to say, I'm sorry, but I cannot be in fellowship with you? Now, I, I don't know if you have a sense of it, if you, if you have ideas, if you have your own kind of... That's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, where do you draw the line? Is there, a, is there a list of issues? Is there a bunch of topics? And we're like, well, if you think this way on this topic, then we're okay. But if you ever cross one of these, ooh, we're out. The problem with any sort of list is that it becomes very pharisaical. And in fact, pretty much any topic can be sinful. <laughs> That's a strange idea, isn't it? Let me pick one example that's not very current for us, just so that no one will get offended. Right? Circumcision. At least I hope it's not a particularly current one. Now, if you need to talk later, come and talk to me, right? Circumcision in the Bible. Now, if somebody held a particular view about circumcision, should we therefore say, well, no, we can't be in fellowship with you? A trick, isn't it? Timothy was circumcised, one of Paul's followers. Titus wasn't circumcised, one of Paul's followers. In fact, Paul will say, whether you are circumcised or not, really doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. But actually, in Galatians we read, if you are circumcised, then Christ means nothing to you. If you get circumcised, you will stop being a Christian. So which is it? That it's perfectly okay and not a problem at all, or you're going to lose your faith if you get... What? Well, the answer is anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, right? Anything can be sin, just about. So to draw a list of topics and to say this one yes, this one no, won't help us. How do we know then? Well, let me, let me give you a little, uh, a, a, a little trajectory. Right? Here's where it begins. It begins with the gospel in our hearts. You might want to write this one down. Gospel in heart. The true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ conquers everything. Everything else comes out of that. 
So we have the true gospel in our heart and that teaches us the truth. So you could write gospel in heart with a little arrow, teaches truth. Everything we know about God comes out of having the gospel in our hearts. And as we are taught the truth, the next little arrow then goes to changes behaviour. Gospel in our hearts teaches us the truth, changes our behaviour. Now we might share anything of the truth or behaviour in common with lots of different people. Right? There, there are plenty of other religious groups whose behaviour looks the same as ours, but who have a very different truth. Right? Many Muslims will be very conservative culturally, will be very religious in their practice, will end up looking very moral in their behaviour. But we have very different truth, don't we? There might be groups that have very similar truth. The Roman Catholic Church shares a whole lot of common theology within it. There's, there's a couple of very important bits that aren't the same, but they share an awful lot of, right, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they share an awful lot of truth with us. But the behaviour that results can be very different. So you can have both of those that can be similar or different and still be in fellowship with somebody who has the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts. For example, a baby Christian, someone who's just been converted, who's just heard the wonderful news of Jesus, given their lives to Him, and the transformation begins, they've got a lot of truth to learn. We might share less in common of the truth with them than with someone else, right? Like, they're just learning, they don't know it yet. Their behaviour might look nothing at all like what we would want of a mature Christian. And yet we have fellowship. We're not going to say to a baby Christian, go away until you've got the right theology and your life looks in order, right? Of course not. And yet we might also have an individual who says they believe the truth, who lives what looks like a very Christian life, but quite obviously do not hold the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts. The true gospel conquers all. I'll leave some more examples for another time. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a saviour. As we wait, we seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, united together as recipients of real righteousness. Do you know yourself to be that person who has received from God his perfection, his life, that you might stand united in joy and in humility and in service with the people in this room against a world that will increasingly hate us to fight for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your vision for 2023? A year in which you will fight for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will contend, you will strive, you will stand in front of those who would deny it and decry it and say that it's rubbish and say, no, this is true and here I stand. Will you stand in front of those who you know are perishing and plead with them? Jesus wants to save you. His righteousness can be yours. Join me as we hope for heaven. Not alone, united, together, standing firm. That we could say with Paul, so then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this matter, stand firm in the Lord dear friends.
Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your glorious grace. Having saved us from our sin, given us all the reason to rejoice. Father, would you fill our hearts with the gladness that comes from knowing that the righteousness we have is in your hands and yours alone. Would you teach us to leave behind what is in the past and to reach forward to heaven, to press on together, contending for the gospel of Christ, in whose name we pray.